This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time to talk politics. And it wouldn't be much of an exaggeration to say that Pierre Poilievre has been crowned head of the Conservative Party of Canada. The numbers and their distribution across the country are impressive. What was a bit surprising, though it probably shouldn't have been, was the speed of the sparring insults between him and the Prime Minister. Justin Trudeau characterized his platform as buzzwords, dog whistles, and careless attacks, while he says the government is being run by a, quote, radical woke coalition. And speaking of the crown and surprises, amid all the outpouring and extensive coverage, including from yours truly, a new poll suggests most Canadians feel no attachment to the British monarchy and few are personally impacted by Queen Elizabeth's death. The Leger and Association of Canadian Studies poll finds nearly three-quarters of respondents say the Queen's death has little to no personal impact on them and they have no attachment to the monarchy. Just over 60% say they are indifferent about King Charles III's accession to the throne. So what do you make of all that? And as you heard in Bob's news, we have heard some details of the Liberal government's plan to fight to help Canadians with the rising cost of living. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now... The Recovering Politicians Panel. Now I'd like to welcome Hugh Siegel, former Senator of Canada, Sherry DeNovo, former Ontario NDP MPP and recipient of the Order of Canada, and John Malloy, former Ontario Liberal MPP, who served as a cabinet minister under the Dalton McGuinty and Kathleen, Kathleen Wynne governments. Hello, and thanks so much for being with us. Pleasure. Pleasure, Libby. Okay. Great, thank you. Well, let us begin with uh, Pierre Poilievre, and let us start with you, Hugh. Uh, we've been talking to you through the course. You uh, have been with this group of, of what do you call them, moderate conservatives, center ice conservatives. What do you make of the results, and what do you think comes next? Well, I think the results speak eloquently to how hard uh, Pierre Polyev and his people worked, not just during the leadership campaign for the last few months, but probably for the previous two or three years. Uh, they would have been instrumental in, in, uh, in, 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 in throwing Aaron O'Toole out of the leadership and organizing that vote in the caucus. So you always have to give some credit to people to work, who work so hard and achieve their goal. Um, it's also important to note that clearly, um, um, Polyev was focused on simply bringing in members who would be supportive of his leadership, 
um, and whether it took supporting the illegal um, truckers' convoy or the illegal um, barricading of our borders uh, or bringing in his own private members' legislation against uh, mandates for vaccines, whatever it took, he was prepared to do it, and he did, and now he's the leader, and he won an overwhelming victory. Now the challenge is, how does he take his message and the Conservative Party into a place where they actually have support outside the conservative family. And that's important because you don't, you don't know conservative wins an election in any province or in Canada just by getting their own people to vote for them. They've got to get liberal NDP switchers who are prepared to look at another party. So that's Pierre's major challenge now. And I don't underestimate his ability to do it, but it will force some moderation with sorts of things he's saying and proposing. Uh, let's go to John Malloy and welcome, John. I think this is uh, our first outing. Um, in terms of Pierre Polyevra, I mean, uh, there was also a demographic aspect to this, and he spoke to a younger demo, and he also spoke to uh, some of the things that a lot of people are suffering, i.e. high inflation. So uh, what do you think of his election? Well, listen. First of all, it's great to be on the on the program. I I don't want to take anything away from him. I might be, uh, you know, from a different party, but I think uh, he had a spectacular victory. I've been impressed. I haven't been impressed with some of the craziness. Uh, I agree with you. You know, when he's uh, uh, cozying up to to the trucker convoy and some of the anti vax stuff and all that. But I've got to tell you, he's been on message uh, a lot when it comes to economic issues. He is, I think, really touched some 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 buttons out there. Uh, when you've know, spoken about inflation and the and the cost of groceries and you know the great line he had about uh, you know a government that can't run passport offices, I think he has been been <laughs> more than a grain of truth in that. Go no, ahead, sorry. I think he's he's asking he's asking the right questions. The problem he's going to have is that he's he's got everyone's attention. Um, but over time, people are going to start to say, well, what are the answers? And he doesn't really have a lot of answers. I mean, you know, I watched his speech Saturday night, very, very well done, but, you know, there was no substance there. I mean, you know, cutting, cutting the deficit to get rid of inflation may sound good, but if, if cutting the deficit means taking money out of the pockets of people through, through either higher taxes or less services or less in terms of transfers, I mean, people are going to start to kick the tires of this car. And uh, that'll be when the when the questions arise. But I I don't want to uh, you know I want to give him credit. He 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 did a great job in terms of his campaign, and he did a great job in terms of addressing some of the issues that people care about. And I think uh, you know my 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 former colleagues there in the Liberal Party could could learn some lessons from him about talking about things that people care about. Uh, this just in, literally, I just saw an alert uh, this minute. So the Prime Minister has declared that September the 19th, next Monday, will be a national holiday in honour of the Queen's funeral. And uh, Sherry, um, one of the things about Pierre Poilievre, he has characterized the agreement between the Liberals and the NDP as a radical, woke coalition. So, uh are they radically woke? Uh, absolutely not. And uh, I will agree only on one thing with my colleagues. And by the way, it's an honor to be on the panel with them. Um, and, and that is that he's a magnificent organizer. But where is he organized? He's organized on the, the right wing. 
Uh, he's organized among fringe players. He's organized among the convoy people. And he's been dropping in the polls over the summer because of it. Uh, not with his own party, obviously, but that was predicted months ago. I mean, I think months ago we knew he was going to win, maybe not on the first ballot, but with a huge majority. I mean, this is a man who supported the convoy. And we know that between 62 and 70 percent of Canadians do not support the convoy. Um, it's a man who'd get rid of $10 a day childcare. We know that. <laughs> pretty popular. Um, and, you know, again, he's voted against, uh, you know, labor laws. Um, so this is not somebody who, despite his rhetoric, uh, stands with the working class. He stands with the elite. He is one of the elite. Um, and I think you'll find that Canadians don't have much stomach for that. Uh, I, it'll be very interesting to see the aggregate polls when they come out, given a, a little, uh, you know, breather space between the, his, uh, his crowning, as he said, Libby, and, um, uh, and the, the, you know, the reality in Canada, because I think most Canadians don't want Pierre Polyev as prime minister. And I think it would be a disaster if he was. I mean, this is a man who suggested we invest in Bitcoin. I mean, enough said. <laughs> well, yeah, that would, that was not one of his better ideas for sure. I'd like to get to some of the details that the prime minister is just announcing, uh, now. So, uh, they will have a plan to double the GST benefit. They want to introduce a temporary dental care benefit for most families with children under 12. Uh, that obviously was part of their agreement with Jagmeet Singh and the NDP and to provide a one-time $500 payment for low-income renters. Is that enough to meet inflation and to meet the Poilievre challenge, you? Well, um, I don't have any difficulty with what the Prime Minister has announced. I think those are good substantive policies. But one of the challenges for the present federal government is the gap between announcements made and programs actually delivered. Yeah. Uh, and that gap is, I think, one of the things that were I working for this prime minister in an unlikely circumstance, I would say you really have to get the public service uh, focused on delivery within a fixed period of time. So commitments the government makes are seen to be real on the street by the people who are the intended recipients. And I think that's his biggest challenge. So I think what he's announced is constructive and it'll be helpful to, uh, to, uh, to millions of Canadians, but only if the programs are actually in place and are delivered. And I think that second part of the challenge is really what I think he should have his people focusing on. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that. And, uh, I always feel a little nervous opening myself up to flack when I say that I think perhaps all those, uh, fully paid civil, a lot of the fully paid civil servants during the pandemic, uh, did not perhaps work as hard as they might have. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned the gap and, and the first thing that comes to mind is the top up in old age security for people over 75. That was announced before the 2019 election. And and, well, and, uh, and and yeah, you're right. You're you're absolutely right about that, Libby. And 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 let's be clear: no, no, no further back than earlier than early this morning, the federal government announced that in terms of the loans which they made to small business during the pandemic, which were good things to do to keep those businesses going, the repayment of those loans, which is part of the terms, is something they're going to hand over to CRA because the organization that put out the loans is incapable of pursuing the payback on a timely basis. 
So that tells you that there's a structural issue about how things actually get done. I think or not. is the right agency to prove, but or not, as the case may be. That's <laughs> yeah. right. Well, exactly. And and the CRA actually was very efficient in getting uh, the CERB out to people who needed it in a timely manner. Because remember, at the beginning, it was going to be unemployment or employment insurance, and that wasn't working very well. Uh, John Malloy, uh, I think that's a really interesting point that Hugh just brought up. Well, listen, I I don't disagree that there have been uh, problems in terms of, of delivery. On some of these, but to, to the bigger question of inflation, I mean, the government, any government always finds itself in a little bit of a corner because, um, if, if you're in opposition, you, you can, you know, see a government that brings forward these measures, which, you know, I think sound like very constructive measures. And the response can be, it's not enough. And it's so easy to be in opposition because you can constantly say it's not enough. And listen, $500 is, is, you know, it's a, a significant check you're going to receive, but of course, as a as a as a, a renter, an individual, you're going to say, "Yeah, I could use a little bit more." So, on the one hand, you're going to have the opposition, and you know that's the, the response is going to be, "It's not enough." You're also going to have this bizarre situation with Pierre Polyev saying, "Part of the problem with inflation is 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 too much government spending." So, on the one hand, they'll say it's not enough, and the other hand, they're indirectly saying it's too much because we should cut spending. And it really leaves the, uh, the, the, the government, uh, you know, hung out to dry. At the same time, there are forces out there beyond the government's control, which are fueling inflation. And, you know, the opposition won't, won't give them any kind of leeway on that. So, you know, it's, it's tough being a government in these situations because there, there are these different dynamics at work. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's interesting. I don't think we didn't hear it's not enough from you. We heard, uh, show me the money. Sherry, uh, do you think it's enough? Well, first of all, uh, they're all very lovely gestures that the government has made, and I, I and I agree with my colleagues that um, they're slow in coming. I mean, this is a government, remember, promised things for sure, like proportional representation, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the Liberal Party is famous for making lots of promises and then not carrying through. I'm sorry, but it's true. Um, but, you know, my question really is, how do these impact inflation? Uh, I mean, how does giving somebody $500 towards their rent help inflation? It, it doesn't make a lot of economic sense to me. Now, truly, this is a global problem. It's not Trudeau's problem alone. That's clear. But uh, why aren't they looking at the incredible profits that had been made during COVID years? Uh, The pandemic profiteering was significant. Billions of dollars were made. Um, And and why not tax those? That would certainly help. I mean, if you're going into the grocery store and you're paying a fortune for what used to be a lot less expensive in real needs, uh, you know, food, um, why is that food so expensive. Yes, there's an argument to be made that the delivery chain, blah, blah, blah. But also, quite frankly, there was a lot of price gouging going on, and that is not being looked at. And collecting taxes from our billionaires is not being looked at in any serious way. So I think putting this on, you know, like, I think these are nice gestures, but how they'll impact inflation is very, very moot, I think. And uh, I must say, uh, you know, not proven that there was that there is a lot of price gouging. There is certainly some, but um, we have to see uh, more details on that. I'd like to take a couple of calls. We've got Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hello, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. Um, quick subject 
probably uh, all of your commentators uh, have made a point that um, Justin and the gang there and the liberals have made lots of promises and a lot of them have never been lived up to yet. But as you just alluded to, it's probably a lot of because of the public service itself. But the conversation started with Pierre Polyevra and um, his job is going to try and convince moderate conservatives like myself and a lot of others. Uh, can he walk back some of that really far out rhetoric that he came up with and convince the uh, general public that, you know, he's, that he's not a far right wacko. Uh, yeah. Okay. Thanks for that, Ron. Uh, I have to say that uh, I have talked to him on this program many times, not while he was running for the leadership. So I guess we're not the demographic, but uh, he's very smart and, uh, I don't know. I don't think, I don't think wacko is a possibility with him. He's very smart. Uh, but the question is, I guess, what is he willing? How far is he willing to go? Uh, let's take a call from Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Hi, Libby. Um, lots of interesting thoughts. Um, one of which, though, hits me. Uh, Mr. Polivier was first elected, I think, when he was 22 or 23 years of age. Right. And so how much of a pension has he built up at this point? Um, as you know, I've talked on this topic before. We have the haves and the have-nots. And the people working in the federal government have huge pensions, 70% index pensions. And the rest of the world struggles. And um, Mr. Polivier is already entitled to a very large pension. And he has no practical experience. Has he ever had a real job or has he just been in Parliament? Exactly. That is one of the, I think, enduring ironies. He uh, is that that he's a career politician and his message would be very anti-career politician. So uh, I don't know. Politics makes strange bedfellows. Uh, Pat, thanks for your call. Uh what do you think about that, Hugh? Is that ever going to come back to bite him? The, uh, the, you know, the dissonance between his, his, uh, uh curriculum vitae and, and the stuff he says. Well, Libby, um, look, he's been brutally frank about uh, being elected for, as a, at a young age. Uh, he was first elected as a reform, um, person and then became a conservative when the two parties came back together. Um, and the fact that he has not had experience outside of politics would be one of the things I would expect that he would have to address in the next three years. That means that while you can be in Parliament and you can be, you know, asking questions to the Prime Minister, he probably should be taking two or three days every couple of weeks outside of Parliament, visiting plants and, and, and companies and small businesses and agricultural centers and others to hear from Canadians directly what they need and what they think government should be doing so he can not make up for the fact that he has no career outside of politics, but he can add to the perception of what it is he's trying to do by being seen genuinely to be out there to find out where Canadians' challenges are and what government can do either by getting out of the way or more into the process to be helpful to them. 
Well, Hugh, you're giving him a lot of free advice there. Um, so we just heard that uh, we're having a federal holiday uh, next Monday for the Queen's state funeral. And it comes, as we've seen this poll, I was quite surprised at the poll taken after the Queen died, saying that it's like meh for most people. John Malloy, what, what do you make of that? Well, I'm I'm not surprised. I think many of us, uh, I've even talked to sort of staunch Republican friends, all of us feel a little bit disoriented uh, to have the, the queen gone. I mean, someone could be in their 60s and she's the only monarch they've ever uh, known. But at the same time, the flip side, I think everybody's just getting on with their their lives and uh, uh, it's not having much of an impact. I, I think people are a little bit wary of uh, our new king and, uh, you know, still trying to get their uh, their tongue around the word king and that sort of thing. But I think in Canada, uh, a lot of people have sort of moved on from the monarchy. The, the the other aspect, though, is that the nature of our country to actually get rid of the monarch would require, uh, you know, constitutional machinations like have never been seen. So I think I think we're gonna we're gonna continue to have a monarch, but I think increasingly it's it's more and more irrelevant to uh, to people of Canada. I don't think they wish any will any ill will towards the uh, the, the the royal family or the new king, but. I think people just want to get on with with their lives. And, you know, the idea of a holiday on Monday, I mean, you know, in one way it's, it's, it, it honors the Queen, but in another way, I, I mean, is it just going to be an excuse for, for, for people to sleep in? I mean, you know, is it really, <laughs> you know, are, are, are people going to be putting on their dark suits and watching? I mean, seriously, it's, and for businesses and, you know, those that are affected, it will have an economic hit. So uh, it's, it's sort of an interesting situation where you know, it is very interesting. Every time this question comes up, I'm told, gee, the way our Constitution is, it would be so impossible to get this done. And sometimes I question that. But I had a really interesting conversation on the weekend with the former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, who knew the Queen well. And when we broached this, his take on it was not that there would be opposition to getting rid of the monarchy um, for substantive reasons. He said, oh, I've, I've been at these uh, federal-provincial negotiations, and there's always one premier who wants to hold up his vote in order to get money. Well, exactly. I mean, it would require unanimity, and, and plus the federal government on side. I mean, you know, that means that the premier of PI is in a grumpy mood that day, and it's, it's not going to happen, so. Uh, yeah. Okay, Sherry DeNovo, do you have a view of that? Yeah, I, I'm. I'm with. Uh, I'm with John on this. I don't think it's a surprise that Canadians, you know, aren't going to be, you know, wearing black and, um, you know, their widows' weeds. Um, I, I think that that's true. Uh, but I mean, I, I do want to say, and this is, I haven't heard covered at all. I mean, it's very interesting. My mother and my grandmother were both born pre-1928, very English, and we had to listen to the Queen's Address on Christmas Day. Uh, I think she was one of the few women of power that they saw in the world. And not only that, they were born at a time, um, one English, one Canadian, when women were considered property legally to, you know, of their husbands or their fathers. And so was the Queen, who was born before 1928. So both in the UK and here, that's when women got the vote. Um, and again, just white women should 
you know, say that as well. Um, BIPOC women didn't get the vote till many, many decades later, especially Indigenous. Um, so I think she really represented for a lot of women um, a significant role. So I, I want to give her that. I, I also, the best comment I've heard is uh, the Queen seemed like a very nice woman. Uh, she would want uh, for everyone what she enjoyed, which was a guaranteed livable income, public affordable <laughs> housing, and excellent and free public health care. So I also think that's true. Um, I mean, you know, yes, it does the, the, does the monarchy cost us some money? It does. But in the great scheme of things, you know, as, as we've acknowledged, it would take so much to, to get rid of it constitutionally. And it probably generates a fair amount, certainly for the UK, of tourist dollars. So, uh, you know, it's benign. I see it as benign right now. Um, but um, there's a caveat to that, too, and that is our Indigenous voices who would really like to see the new King Charles III address some of the colonialist doctrines that are still part of, of the monarchy. And, um, and I hope I actually have hopes that he might. He's an environmentalist. He seems forward-thinking. Um, so maybe he will come through for not only our Indigenous, but Indigenous around the world. Okay, uh, I am looking at the clock, and it's almost time to wrap up, so I'm going to give everyone 20 seconds each, starting with John Malloy. What are we looking for? I I think it's going to be interesting the period after uh, the Queen's funeral when Parliament comes back and to see the dynamic between uh, Pierre Polyev and, and the Prime Minister. I don't think time is Pierre Polyev's friend. I think people are going to start to ask some tough questions, and uh, he's not going to have a lot of answers. Sherry? Uh, exactly, and I think that you'll find that the polling shows that, and I think it'll show it sooner rather than later. And Hugh, last word to you. Well, my last word is that I agree with both of my colleagues on the panel. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed to disagree, but no, that's great. Thank you all, Sherry DeNovo, Hugh Siegel, and John Malloy. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye, Libby. Thank you. Bye-bye. We are taking a quick break. And when we come back, it's Arthritis Awareness Month. And it's a very important topic because I bet you're not aware that this is the most common health condition in Canada when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. September is Arthritis Awareness Month. Did you know that arthritis is the most common health condition in Canada, affecting one in five? Wait times for joint replacement surgery, knees and hips. Uh, was Wait times were bad to begin with, but they have ballooned terribly because of the... T- pandemic. And one of the big problems is that the condition is often minimized. You hear people say, it's just arthritis, or they say that it's an inevitable part of aging. It's not. I'm going to give the numbers out. If you have questions, we have a guest here who will be able to give you some answers. 
also comments. I'm sure that a lot of you out there are living with arthritis. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Trish Barbato, President and CEO of the Arthritis Society of Canada. Thanks for coming by, Trish. I am so delighted to be here. So let's talk about this tendency to minimize the importance or the seriousness of arthritis? Well, I think that because it's so prevalent, as you said, one in five, it means that we have six million Canadians that are living with arthritis right now. It means that in Ontario alone, we have about two and a half million. It's such a big number that it's almost too big. You think, well, what are we going to do about that? It just seems a bit overwhelming. I think that the myth that it is an older person's disease is also something that we're trying to break. Most of the people with arthritis are under the age of 65. So the majority of people today with arthritis are under the age of 65. People are shocked by that. Also, that people are of every age. Children are diagnosed when they're two, when they're four, when they're 10, when they're 14 with arthritis. It affects young people, working people, men, women. So it's really, really prevalent. And I think that that's one of the myths that I think makes it less of a condition that people are talking about and talking about, I think, with the respect, if I may say, that it deserves. But there's a range, uh, and we're talking about osteoarthritis, which is the most common type. There's a range. I mean, you can have mild, moderate, and you can have serious arthritis that that really limits your life. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really important thing about the the types of arthritis. There's over a hundred. So the complexity of the disease is really interesting. You have the whole you have a whole side that's autoimmune related. So with rheumatoid arthritis, this is really serious. You want to get treated early. You want to be assessed. You want to get a diagnosis as fast as possible because you need treatment for that. And I agree with the osteo. It definitely has a range, but it's really interesting. A friend that I know told me that his foot has been bothering him for so long. He eventually went and got it checked out and he has arthritis in his big toe. He said, I never in a million years would have thought that arthritis in my big toe would have taken up so much of my my brain waves, my thoughts every day, the the pain I'm experiencing walking. So I do agree with you that there is a range, but even arthritis in one joint can really impact a person's day-to-day quality of life. And we just want to give a voice to people to say, yeah, we hear you. We agree with you. Let, let's talk a little bit about wait times. We're talking about joint replacement surgery. And no, it's called elective surgery. And that is so much of a misnomer because if if you're stuck and you can't do your daily routine uh, because you're waiting for joint surgery, that's, you know, it's scheduled surgery. So what are the wait times like? I mean, I already know tons of people who've had their hips replaced and some who've had their knees replaced. Yeah, that's fantastic. So the federal target is six months. So basically every Canadian who needs it. So between the date that their surgeon says you qualify and yes, we're going to book your appointment, that wait time, that's only one of the wait times. There's another wait time between you going to your doctor 
and then getting to the specialist, but let's call it the specialist to surgery, that shouldn't be more than six months. No province is meeting that target for everybody. None. And that was before the pandemic. The pandemic exasperated those those wait times. And you know, it's a good target. I mean, obviously, if you need it that badly, you've been assessed. You want surgery within six months. It totally makes sense. We are seeing there has been a lot of investment. I want to give credit to a lot of the provinces that heard the cry out. We did a pan-Canadian expert panel on this and, and created a report called The Way to provide some, some help on things that could be done. And so I do want to you know, recognize that, that there was a lot of a step up to say, yeah, we've got to get this done. We've got to get caught up. We are still uh, in Ontario, depending on the surgery, something in the 65 to 75% range of patients who actually get their surgery within that targeted wait time. So we really want to see all provinces meet that target for all their patients. And it's tough. I'm not saying this is easy. There are so many other surgeries. There's so much competition for surgery rooms and so many complicating factors. But we need to get that down. Well, there there are some ideas out there. I know that your your report had some ideas and uh, in terms of the joint replacement surgery and there are a lot of people worried about this, you know, is it, but moving it out of the hospital where it competes with other surgeries and designated centers, is that one of your ideas as well? Well, I think some of, some provinces are already doing that. So we're talking about publicly funded, privately delivered healthcare, which I don't want to get into that debate, but that happens already, right? That happens already. We do it with home care. We do it with long-term care. We do it with many other services in in healthcare. So it's an option. It's definitely an option if we're trying to see that number reduce and get that back on track. What are some of the other thoughts that you have for... Well, I think, and this is probably a bigger discussion, but data and collecting the right data so that everyone is doing it in the same way so that we know both wait times. We know the wait time from the doctor to the surgeon and then from the surgeon to surgery so that we can really uh, look at things in a, in a comprehensive way across Canada. And we just don't, we just don't have, I would say it's getting better, but we don't have that. I think that we have best practices in certain hospitals. I mean, we have some hospitals that are caught up to date and they're doing, well, what are they doing? What are the best practices that should be shared, that uh, should be perhaps standardized? And, and we're seeing some of that, like one day surgeries and that sort of thing where people are being sent home quite safely uh, for the ones that are assessed for that. So we do have some things that have been brought up many other times, but I think that now is the time. Post-pandemic, now is the time to take advantage of innovation, to take advantage of really uh, taking all of this um, uh, impetus to get things done and just do it. I think one of the other things is merging surgical lists, that rather than having each surgeon have her or his own waiting list, like if you just go around to the the surgeon who is has a, an availability, that usually cuts wait times. Yes. And again, there are some regions that are doing that. It's just not, it's not standardized, I would say. People don't have the same experience from one province to another, sometimes from region to region and city to city. So I think that that's absolutely a way that we can get at that is people having access to the first available surgeon. And again, I want to get back to this perception that it's common, it's a result of old age. 
is that and and the surgery is I'm here on air quotes elective is is that a big part of the problem? Oh, I think that I I really detest that word. I mean, how can it be elective? Like I have a mother-in-law who is waiting for a new replacement. She can't walk. So she can't go to her exercise class now. She, she's just getting worse and worse. I'm watching it before my very eyes. So, yeah, it's not elective. It is scheduled. And, of course, we need to prioritize and do all those things. But people really need to advocate for themselves sometimes. I think that, you know, we really miss people. And I've heard of people who they thought that their appointment was set, but they hadn't gotten a confirmation or they thought they had an appointment, but then they didn't. And so I think keeping up to date with your doctor to get you that appointment to the surgeon, with the surgeon to make sure that you're fully prepared, you have all your questions, you have someone with you, just really helping to make that as seamless as possible is really important. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We're having a very important discussion about arthritis. It's the most common condition in the country. It is not inevitable with old age. I'm going to give the numbers out. If anyone wants to call to talk about their experience with arthritis or to ask some questions, we've got Trish Barbato, who's the CEO of the Arthritis Society. The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 744 740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. I am here with Trish Barbato, the CEO of the Arthritis Society. We're talking about arthritis. It's a very common condition. It is not inevitable as we age. And there are things that you can do to manage it. And Trish, uh, medical cannabis is one of them. Well, I think we're proponents of doing more research into medical cannabis. We know that people are using cannabis for pain management. We'd like to understand what what is the research to back this up so that that can lead to proper dosing and proper uh, you know packaging and all the things that would be important in people taking it in a way that is research and evidence based. So we'd like to for there to be no tax on medical cannabis for it to be more uh, widely available and, um, you know, for people to have access. But I think the research on that is really, really critical. And is is it ongoing now or does it need funding? Yes, it does need funding. And we're working uh, closely to try and support this. We, you know, if it can be a way to help people manage their pain, then we really, we fight for for people with arthritis. We fight for those patients who need it. So we're all for it. And yes, money is required. Okay, let's take a call from Arlene and Lindsay. Hello, Arlene. Hi, Libby. Um, I just have one statement to say um, about the hereditary part. Uh, my mother had arthritis in her hands and her knees, etc., and the hands get deformed, etc. Well, now I'm getting older, and as I'm aging, I'm getting the exact same hands. I call them my mother's hands, and my sister's the same thing. They're bit younger than I am, but they're heading down the same road. So all of us seem to have inherited the deformity of the hands, especially. And um, we're not sure why or etc. especially now after I'm hearing this, it's not inevitable. Well, for us, it seems that it's going to be inevitable and it is inevitable because it's happening to me personally. I think one of the things I learned, and thank you so much for your comment, is that there is so much science and biology in arthritis. And we have way more questions 
then we have answers. So is it hereditary? We don't know. There are some of those over 100 types that we have more knowledge and and insight and research, but many that we do not. And we don't understand the biology of what what causes it, why the cells are attacking the body. Uh, So we have, as I said, more questions than answers, but it's not uncommon for that to happen in, in within families. Okay, let's go to Maria in Etobicoke. Hi, Maria. Hi, Libby, uh, and hi, Trish. Um, I'm a member of the Arthritis uh, Association. First of all, um, I had to give up my role in, in CARP due to the six types of arthritis that I have oh, that dear. Have ravaged my body. I waited eight months to um, have hip surgery, which the hip had collapsed the year before. Sorry to hear Um, that. But what I do want to say that has helped me a lot during the pandemic with all the webinars, the Arthritis Society once a month puts on an educational um, webinar, usually with a rheumatologist across Canada. And I'm able to learn a lot more. And then when I get to have my virtual appointment with my rheumatologist or in person, I can um, use some of the information I've learned to further what it is that we're doing. Because I have six types that have been diagnosed. um, And I need to... um, commend the Arthritis Society on doing that because my rheumatologist has over 4,000 patients he's trying to deal with, and it's almost impossible. Okay, Maria, thank um, you very, very much for that information. That's good information. There are are resources out there for people who have arthritis, and uh, wow, I mean, I, I guess it could can be difficult to get a diagnosis, which is that detailed. I mean, who would know you have six types? Yeah, I've heard sometimes rheumatologists are like sleuths. They really have to work hard sometimes with certain people to understand. And on the autoimmune side, it can be very difficult to diagnose because people present are present at a young age with a backache or with, with this kind of thing. So it can be difficult to diagnose Definitely. Uh, we do have a lot of resources, Arthritis Talks, and thank you for that. I um, wanted to say that we do have resources. Arthritis Talks are wonderful once a month. Arming yourself with information is a great way to fight for your for your disease and for what you need. And so we really try and support that as much as we can. Now, I'm, I'm going to talk about me for a bit. It's not about me, but I have arthritis in my knees. It's pretty bad. I've been told that I have end-stage arthritis, which... I don't really believe. And I have the bow like my legs are crooked. But so a long time ago, I had a small surgery, arthroscopy, that was almost useless. Uh, And it was not intentional, but I, most of our listeners know I had cancer. I lost quite a bit of weight. That was huge. I wasn't overweight to begin with. That was huge on my knees. And uh, I find the best way to manage is exercise. And if I get all glued up, if I don't move around, um, it's exercise. Libby, thank you for saying that because it's really true. Our therapists, we have a program called the Arthritis Education Rehab and Education Program. And the therapist will say, motion is lotion. And that what seems to be the last thing you feel like doing, which is moving, 
if your hips hurt or your knees hurt, that sort of thing. It is the right thing to do. It is the thing to do to keep moving. And we encourage people to do that all the time. Just please keep moving with those joints. It seems counterintuitive. It's not. You bring up another point about weight management, and I know that can be really difficult I for know, all I of know. us. And so it, but certainly it helps. We know that it helps for people to be exercising, that they're at their right weight. These are all things that we we can do for ourselves. I just want to touch on another point that you made. This is also really interesting, which is we could be looking at an ultrasound of someone with severe arthritis who does not complain of pain or that much pain. We could look at another one where the person is in very mild early stages who is having horrendous pain. So that connection is has not where it's not totally linked. And so thank you for your experience in terms of just um, being able to manage your knees right now. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. And it's, you know, sometimes uh, in a conversation, if you tell people, well, I know it's, it's not convenient and it's, it's hard and, uh, you know, the, but I don't know, I, for me, better than surgery. Yes, exactly. And, and really a surgeon will tell you they want to delay it because they don't, they don't want that, that joint replacement to have to be replaced again uh, later, right? So, right, so yeah. generally we do want people to do as much as they can. In fact, some people who are on wait lists for surgery with a good program, there's a program called GLAD and there are other exercise programs that can help people strengthen all of those ligaments and core muscles in order to either delay the surgery, sometimes even, even it, to your point, not need the surgery because they they can get that pain under control and they could live their daily lives. Well, that's right. It's because you have to compensate and and uh, it's it's tricky, but it's out there. It is. It is. And I think the other thing I'll mention is there is some great research going on around arthritis and really trying to understand and answer some of those many questions that we have, looking at it at that cellular level, looking at it. We have studies, for example, that are looking at postmenopausal women, as an example, and trying to understand what is the connection between the loss of estrogen and bone loss and muscle loss and onset of arthritis. More women get it than men, one in four versus one in five for men. And that's a huge number when you're applying it to millions of people. Is there a connection between osteoporosis and arthritis? That is a great question. I, we don't know that uh, for sure, but again, this study that is going on might give us some insight into that, right? So thinking about that link around hormones and what the connection is with the disease. I'm going to take a call from Murray and Malton. Hi, Murray. Hi, uh, ladies. How are you guys? Uh, I had rheumatoid arthritis when I was a kid. I was paralyzed once with my hands, and a year later, my uh, knees and ankles were paralyzed. Can I get that again? Uh, oh, if you if you have rheumatoid arthritis, uh, and you should talk to a rheumatologist. This is totally outside my comfort zone, but it would seem uh, to me you should um, just get that checked out because I, I have heard of people. It. No, I haven't suffered with with it for years, but uh, like I don't I have no pain and nothing. And well, my ankles are a little tender, but other than that, I was nothing. Oh, yeah. So I would say. I, I think it sounds like you're fine, um, but certainly a rheumatologist might be able to help if you were to get a flare-up or something that seemed to be similar to what you had when you were younger. Yeah, I was just wondering, because you're on the show, if you knew if I would could get paralyzed again. I don't know. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> you call your doctor. 
Yeah, it's a very good thanks. question. Thanks, it's a Marie. very good question. Uh, thanks, Murray. I didn't know that you could get a complete cure from rheumatoid arthritis. We have not a complete cure. We have drugs now that will help slow the progression of the disease. You might recall back in the 60s, people would have completely disformed joints because there really were no drugs uh, that helped with the limitation of that progression of the disease on the on the autoimmune side. But we have those now. We have good drugs that can help slow that progression. And it's just really essential that people get the right diagnosis, get on the right treatment. So is it considered a remission? Yes, it can be considered a remission. Okay, well, that sounds... I don't know. Yeah, I'd hate to try and guess no, no, what's no, no, happening no, no. with that uh, gentleman, but... I'm saying it's great news that he was actually paralyzed as as a kid and, and now he hasn't suffered for years. That's very good news. It's very good news. It's yeah. very... So it, tell me a little more about the research that's going on. What are What are the key things that we have to find out? Yeah, so osteoarthritis, as an example, we do not have anything that slows the progression. There's no drug that you can take that will slow the progression of osteoarthritis. And so the understanding of that disease at a much deeper level will help us ultimately to find something that can help people slow the disease, ultimately find a cure. I think on the autoimmune side, some of the areas that that are really interesting, and we have a global research project going on right now, in Canada and is taking the lead for children to have more personalized medicine. So really looking at their DNA and many other factors to consider what's the best medication for this child. Right now, it's trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, which can be, as you can imagine with a child and the parents, can be excruciating experience to go through. And so thinking about this personalized medicine for children that could be extrapolated further once they have some of this research done so that we can get the right treatment to the right person at the right time. You know, we talked about medical cannabis earlier, and the other side of that are opioids. So are opioids now discouraged for people who are in a lot of arthritis pain? I think generally that is what the, you know, the medical community is... um, has been discouraged on that. There is a pain task force, a global one, and even in Canada where they're talking about this. You know, in some cases, is there still room for certain pain medications? There's a lot of alternatives right now. So again, I think that speaking to your to your medical, your your physician and your specialist, they're the folks that'll have the most evidence-based and current information to help you on your journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, because uh, there was a time and uh, there are a couple of drugs that were taken off the market even years ago. I'm, I'm remembering Celebrex. I don't know if that was, I don't remember if that was an opioid, but things that people use to manage arthritis pain that are not really available or a bad idea. Yeah, I agree. I, I'll just um, comment again, because in Ontario, people do have access. We have therapists, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, social workers trained in arthritis and it's a free service, and they can do an assessment on folks, and they might be able to recommend alternatives to what the person is working with right now. We've made splints for people, for example, for their hands, or different uh, practical ideas that might be helpful in people as they're managing their pain. So I encourage people, you can check that out on arthritis.ca and uh, learn more about getting that service. Uh, 
let's talk about physio uh, and related. Uh, I also get, I see a chiropractor really often. He does the manual, uh, what are they, whatever they call it. Um, so physiotherapists can do that because that's really important in managing it as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, physiotherapy for people who are unsure or perhaps lack confidence in what exercise is going to be okay. I mean, you have a lot of confidence. You have knee arthritis, bowed legs, but you seem confident in knowing that I need to do this exercise, I need to keep moving, and that's great. Some people have less. They're not sure how to do a squat safely, or they're not sure how to strengthen their hamstring or their inner thighs or outer thighs or all the different things. So I think that an assessment and some assistant, depending on where the person is at, it can be so helpful to speak to a therapist to get really, really solid advice and a path forward and some confidence to deal with the disease. And a program. Well, indeed. I mean, the what our therapists, one of the things they say is that patients say, thank you for listening to me. Thank you for acknowledging that I'm in a lot of pain, that I'm suffering with this disease. Just thank you for listening. And it's one of the things that we hear a lot. Uh, are you saying that it's people in the medical professional that in the medical profession that also minimize or dismiss arthritis? Well, I think it's not their fault. They don't have a lot to what can they do? They have no drug to if you come in and I'm a doctor and you have osteoarthritis, I don't have a lot I can do for you. I don't have a drug I can give you that will help slow the progression. There's, uh, you know, pain management. I want you to exercise. I want you to lose weight. And this is where we think there's huge opportunity is looking at this disease with a fresh lens and looking at it in a way that we can do the research to get us to a point that we can, re again, reduce its progression. Mm -hmm. And uh, are you doing any kind of outreach or education to medical professionals? Because I guess people would also feel that they haven't been heard. Absolutely. So we want to really work with that community because we have a really established program in Ontario. It's been around for over 40 years. It's a great program to give to physicians as, hey, you can have somewhere to refer folks. You have a place that they could go where they can get some really specialized arthritis care. So we want to share that knowledge and make sure that people know about that and they can self-refer. And so that'll be a, a great resource, I think, for folks. And we have the uh, webinars, as I said, we have an info line so people can call. We have trained folks that will help just walk you through. That one, I think, especially when people are first diagnosed, they're quite confused and a bit lost, especially on the autoimmune side. And so that's really helpful. You can also just email and uh, we will respond and just try and give you the best information about what you're going through and how we can help you. We only have about a minute left. Um what do you want to leave people with on this? You know, I'm going to leave you with what I heard from a woman, young mother, living with arthritis. And I asked her that question. And she said, I want people to realize that just because they can't see my arthritis does not mean that I am not suffering. So if I am slow to get to something, don't be impatient with me. If you are wondering why I am not quick enough getting out of my car or doing this or doing that, I might have arthritis and you just don't know it. So I think that empathy around the fact that so many people have arthritis, that it tends, unless you see the deformity in the joint, it is invisible. And I think acknowledging that and 
the work that we're doing to try and support the lives of people just like her. So supporting us, uh, supporting research, we really appreciate the time with you and talking about arthritis. My favorite topic. Okay. And this was really informative and we appreciate the time with you. Trish Barbados, CEO of the Arthritis Society. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.